lively group. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Exodus chapter 7? An extremely revealing passage before us this morning, beginning in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 7. Let's ask God's blessing. Lord, we thank you as always for your word. It gives us truth. It nourishes us. It also prepares us. Your word gives us insight into that which is happening behind the scenes in life. Things that we need to be aware of. So, Lord, reveal truth to us this morning. I pray your blessing again upon this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So last time together, we studied the first encounter that Moses and Aaron had with Pharaoh of Egypt. And remember, it didn't go so well. Everything blew up. Moses came to Pharaoh and said, the Lord God says to you, let my people go. And Pharaoh responds, who's the Lord God of Israel? And no, I won't let your people go. And then Pharaoh proceeded to make it much worse for the Hebrew slaves, increasing their workload. And the Hebrew slaves, the very people that Moses and Aaron came to help, are mad at them. It was just a wreck. It was a terrible experience. But here in our text this morning, Moses and Aaron go a second time to see Pharaoh. And you got to give them credit for doing so. I mean, after the way it went the first time, they could have said, no more meetings with Pharaoh for me. We're out of here. Send someone else. But God sent them, took a lot of courage, and they went. And in this second encounter, a veil is lifted. We get to see a very intense spiritual war that's happening underneath. So look at verse 8, chapter 7. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, Then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants and it became a serpent. So Moses and Aaron go in this second time, no doubt they had the same request for Pharaoh. The Lord says, let my people go. Pharaoh again responds, no, I don't know your Lord. But the Lord had given Moses and Aaron a heads up. He had anticipated that in this second meeting, Pharaoh's going to ask for a sign. He's going to ask for proof. And that, in fact, happened. And so a rod is thrown down on the palace floor and immediately it's turned into a serpent. Now the language here implies a really big, nasty, deadly 
kind of snake. It's my personal opinion that that rod became a large, deadly female cobra. And I believe that it was a shocking moment. I believe it took everyone off guard. Everyone took a step back. And it wasn't just shocking because it's this poisonous snake. But this was a sign. This was a clear sign from God to Pharaoh. This was a challenge. We know that because the serpent, or more specifically, the female cobra, was the symbol of Pharaoh's authority. The pharaoh of Egypt was known as the serpent. In fact, on the ceremonial headdress of the pharaoh, there was always crested a serpent, just like this one. That's King Tut. Pharaoh had a serpent at the top of his head. He's the serpent man. And I also read something else this week that totally blew my mind. Whenever a brand new pharaoh ascended the throne of Egypt, whenever a new one was inaugurated, they'd ascend the steps, they'd take this ceremonial headdress upon them, and they'd pray this prayer. O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, Let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of spirits. Pharaoh praying to a serpent at his inauguration. Pharaoh was the serpent. And this sign in the palace was God inviting one serpent to a snake fight. This was a challenge. Through that sign, through Moses and Aaron, God was saying to Pharaoh, I'm going to take your royal authority and power and majesty down. I'm going to make you like a serpent crawling on the floor. And no, everyone in the palace would have received that message. Everyone would have seen that as a challenge. So that's another reason why they would have been so terrified. Okay. There's something deeper, though, going on behind this scene. There is another very powerful being, somebody way more powerful than Pharaoh, who is also mentioned in the Bible. There's another serpent. And he shows up throughout Scripture. You find him in Genesis chapter 3, the saddest chapter in the whole Bible when the human race fell into sin. It says in Genesis 3.1, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, 
You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. So the serpent right there in the garden tempting mankind. And it worked. They fell. We fell into sin. Deceived by the serpent. And the serpent has been active throughout all of history. In fact, this same serpent is mentioned in the last book of the Bible. Here in the third chapter. And then also in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. The big serpent, The big scary serpent is none other than Satan. The devil himself who has been deceiving mankind, warring against the souls of mankind throughout history, dating all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, continuing to right now. And gang, it was that serpent who was lurking beneath the Egyptian culture. The real power behind Pharaoh was satanic. Satan fueled Pharaoh. He's the serpent man. And in fact, the real power behind the entire Egyptian power structure was satanic, demonic. It was one of the most spiritually dark cultures in all of human history. The Egyptians worshipped around 80 different deities, both gods and goddesses. There was a god or goddess that was responsible for every aspect of Egyptian life. Temples and shrines all over the land honoring these different deities. There was an Egyptian priesthood in place to facilitate the worship of gods. In fact, in Egyptian culture, Pharaoh himself was seen as a god, the son of Ra, the sun god, thought to be a superhuman, divinely empowered man. Now, the Bible teaches very clearly that idolatry is satanic. The Bible teaches that behind every idol is a demon. And there were demons all over Egypt. Black magic, witchcraft, enchantments, the occult, embedded all over the Egyptian culture. It was dark. It was satanic. And by the way, you can always spot when something is extremely satanic when a culture or a dictator like Pharaoh goes after the people of God, like the Hebrews. Did you know anti-Semitism is one of the most satanic activities? When Satan goes after the Jewish people, the people that God chose to bring his Messiah through, the scriptures, the prophets, and all of that. And so that explains a lot as to how Pharaoh is treating the Hebrew people 
terrorizing them, the Egyptian taskmasters beating them. So understand, God is not just challenging Pharaoh, the man. In this whole scene, God is exposing the spiritual forces of darkness underneath. And he's going to show everyone involved that he's more powerful. And that people need to get out of that kingdom of darkness. He's going to work to remove his people, redeem them from that kingdom of darkness. I would also argue that God works in the book of Exodus to redeem the Egyptians. To get them out of that dark culture. So the challenge is issued. What does Pharaoh do? Well, this might throw you for a loop. Look at verse 11. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. So the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. Every man threw down his rod and they became serpents. Pharaoh calls his wise men sorcerers, magicians. And they go and they start working their dark, secret arts, their witchcraft, their enchantments. They throw down their rods, and their rods become serpents. Now, there are many Bible scholars who will say that the magicians in Egypt's court were like magicians like we think of today, sleight of hand, tricks, illusionists. I even read how some believe that these Egyptian magicians were snake charmers, and they could charm snakes and put snakes into a place of hypnosis where they would become rigid, like rods, and they could pick them up, but then when you threw them on the ground, they became animated. I think you have to look at the language straightforward. A sign was duplicated. Satan empowered those magicians to do this miracle. Satan is powerful. By the way, the magicians will be able to duplicate the first two plagues. So here they are able to make these snakes, and later they'll be able to turn water into blood, and they'll be able to call up these frogs from the water. Listen, Satan is powerful. Satan can do signs and wonders. The New Testament teaches that Satan can disguise himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. He can make himself look beautiful. He can take costumes on. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 concerning the last days when the Antichrist comes on the scene, talk about a satanic dictator. 
The Antichrist will be that. Paul says the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. With all power, signs, and lying wonders. John sees this in his vision of the last days. And he writes about this deceptive miracle working Antichrist. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He deceives those who dwell on earth by those signs. Jesus said of the end time, this is Jesus himself, false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So you need to understand something. Satan is powerful. You can't just believe somebody because they do something supernatural. Satan can work counterfeit miracles. He has counterfeit apostles and prophets. And he propagates a counterfeit gospel message. Satan is deceptive. Satan is tricky. And there's so many things in life where you find that serpent underneath the serpent. Now, the enemy does have power. No doubt. But his power is not absolute. And please understand, his power doesn't even come close to the power of God. Please know that. God is way more powerful. So these magicians, they make their little snakes. They put them on the palace palace floor. Look what it says in verse 12. Every man threw down his rod and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. I love that. Now you read that in the scripture and you just kind of read it. But I want you to think about that. What a disturbing scene that must have been. The hissing. The fighting. The back and forth. And Aaron serpent. Aaron and Moses serpent. Devours all of the other serpents whole. You know I was wondering if anything like that had ever happened. And so I did a little Google search. There was a video posted just last month that came out of India that shows a cobra devouring a Burmese python whole. I thought about showing you the video. Would that have blessed you? (laughs) No, I just gave you a, a screen shot. And I will tell you, it is disturbing to watch a snake eat another snake. It is ugly. It is brutal. God's snake gobbled up the other serpent. God is way more powerful. Satan would like to keep you in his dark kingdom saying, hey, look, you got power here. Hey, there's some power there, but there's much more power in God's kingdom. God will demonstrate his power throughout this whole story 
all of the plagues, everything. These magicians, so they can make snakes, God's snake can gobble up their snakes. They'll be able to duplicate the first two plagues. They'll be able to turn water into blood and make these frogs come. Question, though, why would you want more water being turned into blood? If you really want to impress someone, turn the blood back into water. But the magicians can't do that. And by the way, by plague three, when God turns the dust into the gnats, the Egyptians can't duplicate that. And after that miracle, they will actually come to Pharaoh and say, can't do it. That one's the finger of God. God is way more powerful. And every one of those plagues is aimed at humiliating several of the Egyptian deities. God will demonstrate his power. God does demonstrate his power over the dark forces. In fact, God humiliates them publicly. And there are many examples of that in the scripture. You remember the story in 1 Kings chapter 18 where there's a showdown on Mount Carmel, Elijah against the prophets of Baal. You remember that story? They're going to have a battle of the gods. You remember? They both get an altar and they're going to call down fire from heaven. And the God who does that, that's the real God. So the prophets of Baal get to go first. They start in the morning. And they start crying out to Baal all the way till lunchtime. Nothing happens. They start crying out louder. They start cutting themselves. They start doing all of these things. Nothing. And Elijah gets kind of brutal, you remember? Maybe Baal's asleep. Perhaps he's on a vacation. They're not able to do anything. When it's God's turn... The real turn, fire comes down from heaven. God publicly humiliated Baal. Also love the story in 1 Samuel chapter 5. This is one of my favorite stories. The Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, the most holy part within the temple. The presence of God meeting the people there. They steal the Ark of the Covenant... They bring it to the city called Ashdad. Now, in the city of Ashdad, there's a temple that belongs to the fish god named Dagon. So, they put the Ark of the Covenant next to the statue of Dagon in the temple. They lock the temple up for the night. They come back the next morning. And Dagon's fallen and he can't get up. He's lying face forward before the Ark of the Covenant. And then my favorite part, the Philistines, well, they help their God up, put him back up on the pedestal, put Dagon back up there. They lock up the temple. The next morning they come in. This time Dagon has fallen over. His head has been cut off. His arms are gone. The only thing left of the statue of Dagon is a torso. God humiliating these false gods. Why does God do that? 
Is God humiliating cultures? Is he seeking to humiliate people? No, he's seeking to show publicly the futility in relying upon the false gods. God is demonstrating his power. God wants to lead people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So he exposes what's going on. He seeks to redeem people, enlighten people, show them the way out. And that's what he's doing in this scene in the palace. palace. Did Pharaoh get the message? Now he digs in. Look at verse 13. Pharaoh's heart grew hard. He did not heed them as the Lord had said. His heart was hardened. He's not ready to give up the fight. Pharaoh will be stubborn despite all of the miracles that he sees. He'll be stubborn to the very end And he will pay a high price for it. And everyone in his kingdom will pay a high price right along with it. So I called this message this Sunday, the serpent underneath. Because I wanted you to see that in Egypt, the serpent underneath. And I also want you to understand this morning that this whole situation with Moses and the children of Israel in bondage to slavery by the Pharaoh of Egypt is a picture of the great battle that has always taken place since the fall of man and it continues today and it will continue until Jesus comes again. Listen, there is a real devil. There is a real Satan. There is a real serpent lurking beneath. He seeks to keep people in bondage to sin and to death. He's the one that deceived the human race into sin and now works to keep them in bondage to it. He seeks to keep people blinded in the kingdom of darkness. He's a great deceiver with great power. Satan has been the influencer of world dictators throughout history who are hostile to the people of God and the plan of God and the truth of God. That enemy is real. But there's also a living God who's way more powerful and seeks to expose that and draw people out into his kingdom. And God has demonstrated his power over Satan in many ways. But I'll tell you, the death blow came to Satan at the cross at Calvary. See, Satan had his part in deceiving the human race, and we're born in sin, and it's ruined us. But God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to make it possible for our sins to be forgiven so that now we could be members of the kingdom of light, children in the family of God, forgiven, victorious, redeemed out. We're told in Colossians chapter 1, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us 
into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. See that? There is a kingdom of darkness and hatred and destruction. There's a kingdom of light, one of love and grace. And through faith in Jesus Christ, you can be redeemed and understand something very clearly. The Bible does teach that behind all of the physical things that we see right now in this world, there are two kingdoms. There is a dark kingdom. And there is a kingdom of light. Both those kingdoms exist, and everybody is in one of those kingdoms. You can't have a foot in each kingdom. You're in the kingdom of darkness, or you're in the kingdom of light. And there is a Satan who tries to keep people in the darkness, tries to keep them deceived. And there is a God who seeks to redeem and save. And there is a tremendous battle taking place over the souls of people. And if you're a born-again Christian here this morning, you need to be reminded of that. You need to remember that there are things happening behind the scenes. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. There's spiritual warfare happening all around. If you are part of the kingdom of light, you're to shine your light. You're to allow God to use you to rescue others and we win this battle through prayer we win this battle through sharing the gospel message with others that is the only way we need to share the gospel and so the mission of the church is to take that gospel message right across the border to Mexico with acts and showing of love It's to take it as far as Africa. It's to take that message all over this dark world. It's to take that message into this very community. Sharing the way out. Praying that God would break the spell of the serpent that is so evident in some people's lives. That God would deliver them. Which kingdom are you in? Now, the enemy would try to convince you that there's no such thing as these kingdoms. Don't worry about it. Live your life. That's deception. There are two kingdoms. Which one are you in? Have you given your life to Christ Jesus? I want to put up one of the most well-known verses in all of scripture, but then I want to keep reading. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? Saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. You must put your faith and trust in him. It goes on to say, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. You see, the darkness, the light, which one do you love? Which one do you want? Have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? Don't stay in the darkness. Walk out into the light. Give your life to Jesus if you haven't. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Lord, help us to remember these things, to be mindful of what's going on, to be mindful of these two very different kingdoms. Lord, sometimes we get upset with people. We get angry with people. How we need to be reminded that there are things going on behind the scenes. Maybe we want to beat up people politically. Get even with people, all those people that have hurt us. And yet, Lord, help us to be mindful of the things that are happening behind the scenes. I pray, Lord, that we'd be rescuers. Shine your light. Through your people, Lord, I pray in a mighty way in these last days. You told us to shine our lights, not to hide it under a bushel. Lord, I'd also like to pray for anyone here this morning who is not sure of which kingdom they are a member of. Your head's bowed, your eyes closed. Maybe you weren't even aware of these two kingdoms. Maybe you've suffered enough in the kingdom of darkness. You've had your fill of it and it's lacking. Enter the real kingdom. Enter the kingdom of light. You know, salvation is likened to being blind, but then being able to see. When you give your life to Jesus, you'll come out of the dark and your eyes will be opened. God will save you. He'll redeem you. He'll put his spirit in you. 
He'll light you up. But there's only one way in, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins and rose again. He paid that penalty, and through him you can be saved and forgiven. Through him and him alone you can be rescued. Have you been rescued yet? If not, I invite you to pray this prayer. Surrender. Admit that you need him. Admit that you're a sinner and you need to be forgiven. Just in the quietness of your heart, if that's you, just cry out to God right now. Lord Jesus, save me. Bring me into your kingdom of light. Wash away all my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Rescue me. Fill me with your light. Make me a light to my family and friends. Put things back together in my life that have failed miserably. Lord, take my life. Take over. He'll do it. If you prayed to receive Christ, then I'd like you to come forward and share that with one of us right here at the front. You're going to need prayer support. You're going to need tools that will help you grow in your relationship with Jesus, and we'd like to share those with you. If you need prayer for any reason, we're going to be available. Let's stand together as a congregation.